So this week, the topic is how to teach the attributes of gold and silver, the merits or the values of gold and silver to what we're calling normies. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Mark is here with you for Arcadia Economics. Hope your day is off to a great start and that you are excited because once again, it's Wednesday, which means it's time for John Little's report and he prepared something special. And with that said, let's hand it over to John. Hello, I'm John and welcome to the Wednesday show. Last week, we discussed that gold does well in systems where there's a lot of distrust in an environment of distrust. And everyone knows why we're no longer in a democracy, uh, nor a plutocracy, nor an oligarchy. We have a kleptocracy characterized by bribes, theft, corruption. Uh, we cited good examples last week, um, draining the strategic reserves um, to put them on sale. Um, children of government officials. And this happened with Trump's kids. It happened with Bush's kids, John Kerry's kids, Pelosi's, Biden's. Uh, we're seeing that sort of nepotism. We're seeing members of Congress buy and sell stocks after receiving classified briefings and then, you know, never having an issue picking a stock. So we know that in that system of distrust that gold does real well, same thing happened in Rome, same thing happened in Spain uh, with the Dutch Empire, same thing happened with the King of England. So there's an old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not just history uh, rhyming, it's actually repeating. So this week, the topic is how to teach the attributes of gold and silver, the merits or the values of gold and silver to what we're calling normies. So. The playbook for evangelizing gold and silver is similar to that who would want to spread the word of God. I don't care if you're Buddhist or uh, Hindu or Shinto or Jewish or Christian, but it's sort of a similar playbook. We have Mormons knocking on our door each week. They wear a white shirt like this and a tie. They usually travel on a bike. The wholesome kids have a they're driven with a mission in mind. And it's sort of the same way if you think of the original 12 disciples. Again, it doesn't matter if you believe in that faith or not, but the evangelistic playbook is effective. If one person can get to three and then that person gets to three others, it doesn't take long through exponential growth to reach a lot of people. But one problem that our community is having is only, I think, uh, a half of a percentage point of people actually believe in precious metals. And it's We'll get into that next week. So let's talk about how we would have that discussion with a normie or someone who's just a mainstream citizen and not an enthusiast. So you, we all know the characteristics. Gold is portable. It's durable. It's divisible. It's fungible. But we're not going to talk about any of those things. We're even going to make it more basic. So the first concept to discuss is the hardness of money. Now, sound money is the belief, and that comes from, you've seen the Westerns where Billy the Kid comes riding into town in a dusty town and walks into the bar, plops his silver for in exchange for tequila or beer, and it makes that sound. That's sound money. Now, hardness isn't really how hard it is like that or you know biting on it. Hardness has to do with 
how hard it is to harvest, but it even goes further. It has to do with the existing stockpiles or inventory above ground relative to how much mining effort that takes place each year. So we think there's between around 6 billion to 8 billion ounces. I've heard Doug Casey say, there's about enough for each person on planet earth to have one ounce of gold. So he'll say, so you'll wanna have more than that. So here's a good graphic just to sort of um, convey that talk. This is a soccer field, but any field you want, like a football field, you'd be less than the one yard line in terms of um, mining effort per year against existing stockpiles, which makes it impossible to inflate. So what would be the opposite of impossible to inflate or the hardness of money would be easy money or something that you can just expand the money supply, or we always say out of thin air, or burr goes the printer, right? And you all know the talking point that uh, since COVID or right before um, QE5, whatever number we're on now, that the money supply has doubled. Um, and we all say things like, I think the dollar has been in existence, let's just say around 200 years, that most of the money's been printed in the last two. So how does that affect, if, you, if we were to talk to 100 people at a Target or a Walmart, and we said, what is inflation? No one would say it's the increase in money supply. They would all say it'd be the rising of prices. So let's see how this works and plays out. Because again, we're gonna have discussions with Normie and try to evangelize or spread the good word of gold and silver. So I like to start with a six pack of beer and there's, so six beers and there's $12. Each beer there's therefore is worth two. But if now all of a sudden you infuse double that amount into circulation, each beer is worth four. Take three away, now you have three beers and you still have that $24 chasing those three beers, so you've doubled it again. And that's what we're seeing with problems with the, with the um, supply chain. So why do governments increase the money supply? You just gotta ask yourself, why wouldn't you wanna have sound money or hard money? And it's basically an old, old playbook. It used to be called seniorage. Uh, Rome did it when they clipped the money or debased the money. But whether you're inflating the supply or introducing inferior or base metals to the silver, it still has the same net negative impact, which is the debasement of the currency. And in, I can't think of a case where it isn't because the empire wants to expand through wars. So there's an old saying, I came, I saw, I conquered, veni, vidi, vici, conquer or be conquered. And you can't think of an empire in the last 5,000 years where the uh, political class hasn't had this sort of, um, sort of lust for blood. And it's usually to get someone else's gold or to obtain cheap labor in the form of slaves or, or expropriate some other raw material like the modern warfare it could be farm products, iPhones, cheap oil, some other commodity or natural resource. So we can see in this graph that, or graphic, that in, other, in order to fund the 57 undeclared wars we've had since World War II, um, and let's just say basically to pay for Vietnam right after uh, Nixon and friends closed the gold window, 
we basically had to do so by printing money to fund these adventures. Similarly in Rome, as you see that the purity of the silver used to be above 90%, and then it got down to around 2%, and that's when Rome fell. And as you can see in the graph below, the every as you double the price of everything, or excuse me, as you debase things, by that same percentage, prices will rise. So we've doubled the money supply in the last two years, and many of our assets twice cost twice as much. Aluminum, twice as much. Fertilizer, 10 times more. So that is a good sort of ratio and metric to keep an eye on. So why the playbook of stealing gold? And I always turn this around on people. And when they talk about gold being an ancient relic or a pet rock or some boomer rock or whatever name they're going to call gold and silver, I say, well, if it's such a worthless asset, then why has there been to what extent we've done over history to rob it? So the, the classic cases have always been Aztec, uh, Cortez stole the Aztec's gold, Pizarro stole the Inca's gold. And it was a great story. We're looking at, I mean, it's an unfortunate story for the, for the Inca civilization, but the ransom was one room of gold and the two adjacent rooms filled with silver. And I believe they got around 24 tons of gold in a weekend. And then recently we've seen Ukraine's gold get stolen in 2014. Uh, there on the right, that's Iraq's gold. Um, um, Gaddafi had gold in Libya. So it's an ancient playbook. Roosevelt took our gold. Many say it's going to happen again. The good news is silver, probably not confiscated. So here is just a graph showing the costs of war. And no one really talks about there's so many wars that we all remember Korea and Vietnam, Vietnam, World War II. Um, but this war in Afghanistan that made no sense that lasted for 20 years where we replaced the Taliban with, who was it? The Taliban. Yeah, we replaced the Taliban with the Taliban at a clip of $2.3 trillion or five times the price tag of Vietnam. And here's just a graph of 57 undeclared wars. And you got to think, this is sort of the playbook that the political class loves because you can even trace this back to, um, we talked about last week, how the Bank of England started, the 40 businessmen that loaned money for the war effort, um, King George, I believe, against the French. Um, and we all say that bad word, the Rothschilds, right? Well, they're pretty much the war profiteers and we gotta hate them, right? So this is, now we're pivoting. I'm getting off the war soap, soapbox, and now we're going to talk about energy. Now, there are some precious metal um, analysts that talk about energy as it relates to the mining effort of gold, or that when we fall off the energy cliff, because we reached peak oil sometime in the 80s or 90s, then that's when gold and silver may have discovery. Because right now, oil is sort of a proxy substitute as the most valuable commodity on earth. Days post that, gold and silver may shine in the sun, metaphorically speaking. But this concept is basically the concept of em embodied energy. Now, I used to work for a brick company. And when I worked for this brick company, we would scrape the earth for the clay. It's pretty abundant supply of clay with bulldozers. And we would feed it and store it in a silo. 
uh, feed it through a conveyor belt. We would get rid of the large aggregates. Then it would go through what's called an extruder, which had some compressive strength to it. It's basically brick in its uh, clay form. And then through wire cutters, we would you know slice it up in four by eight units. And then we're using a lot of energy to do this. Then we're stacking this, what's called the green clay. It hasn't been fired yet. So it's almost like Adobe, a soft fired, uh, almost like a hand molded unit, uh, but in a four by eight unit, then it's stacked on rail cars and these, and then it goes through a tunnel kiln. The tunnel kiln is close to about 80 yards long. And before that, it's actually dried. So you got these fans drying it out because if you have water in the clay, it'll explode in the kiln that's at 1800 degrees. Then it takes a four day journey through the tunnel kiln and then it's stacked on the other side, packaged, then 18 wheelers deliver it to the job site. And while I was in architectural sales, the architects wanted us to score how much each brick unit had in terms of its embodied energy. So it's based on per weight, what is that, the score of that brick? And the number is like five or 10, which you'll see here in a second. Here, um, 100 grams of chocolate may take 250 watt hours to produce, the same as taking, and I'll show you soon, um, with some pasta. This is a great story, the journey of three workers. The journey would be uh, Farmer Joe takes a whole season to irrigate his land and to um, plow the land and to plant the seeds, to harvest the crop, to package the crops, to transport them to market, maybe on a wagon. Now we use trucks. And meanwhile, during that same season, you can have Rancher Billy. And Rancher Billy is caring for his cattle, his sheep, his goats, and feeding them, marching them to slaughter. And then they have to be butchered. And meanwhile, prepared for the very same market that Farmer Joe's at. And meanwhile, I could be with my pickaxe. I named my publication the pickaxe just for this um, analogy. I could be doing the work simultaneously and we all agree and we all respect each other's work and meet together at the market and we respect each other's time, labor skills and then exchange. That's another function of gold and silver. So back to the embodied energy. We saw that the gram of, or the chocolate bar took 250 um, watt hours. You could say, or the same amount of effort or energy that it would take to cook, see, one, two, three, four, five times 20 um, kettles of pasta. So that's the concept of embodied energy is you go all the way from harvesting the raw materials through its end product. And then now we wanna see what the score is for silver and gold. gold. So if I just use sticks and stones that are in my neighborhood and sort of stack up a primitive um, structure, or, and this is no slide on uh, the indigenous people, but if you look at that structure there, I don't know if you can see it, but we could call it a hogan. Um, you could just gather the earth around you or maybe some of the beams and they would have low embodied energy because there just isn't a lot of manufacturing effort. Um, a teepee or a lean-to or a tent that you pitch, low embodied energy. Now let's see what, the effort, and this goes to the hardness of gold of, of its score relative to, let's say, I just gave you a long speech about 
how extensive the work was in the brick industry. I mean, and that score again was between five and 10. So here we see a bunch of building materials and you can see where brick is. Again, it's around five. Um, we used to always sell against aluminum and say, God, aluminum takes a huge effort. It's you know up to 40 to 50 times more embodied energy than brick. And we talked about clay fired masonry and those attributes. It's very dense, um, therefore, uh, and it's also not very porous. Your house stays warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. It's handheld. So, and it's beautiful, right? So now let's look at gold. Brick was at five. And that has to do with mega, you know, mega joules per kilogram. Gold is at 310,000. There is not an element or mineral or building material or substance on planet earth that approaches it. Second place, would be platinum at 190,000. And silver has a good score too. Um, it would be much higher than is documented when you research it because no one goes after silver by itself. It's all, it's, it can be a byproduct of zinc and other base metals, copper for instance. So a score of 310,000, whereas brick is at five, do the math on that to talk about the relative value. This is all the steps it takes to go through from crushing to refining. Um, and I always give the analogy of like olive oil. You know, you start with planting the tree, um, then pressing the olive oil um, or baking a cake. There's just a lot of steps, but no, nothing is more labor intensive than gold and silver. Now let's just talk about some things that people just like metrics and number. Here's the historic leap from 1970 to 1980, in only a decade, uh, the, the value jumped 2,300%. Uh, Here was gold. We looked at this last week against all assets. You got to remember, um, gold just did its job. It hung in there. So did silver, maybe 1% or 2% up on the year. Some people say it's flat. Depends on how you cherry pick the year. But against all other asset classes, uh, including blue chip stocks like you know, Tesla did 65% better than Tesla, right? Now you look at how well gold's doing just in other currencies. And that's um, what this graph's about. The only one it did poorly against would be the dollar. And it didn't do poorly at all. Again, it did 66% better than Tesla, 50% better than Google, 50% better than Disney. It did a great job against those three headwinds we talked about. And I always describe the headwinds like, do you remember the first time you may have saw the Wizard of Oz? You know, Dorothy's world is upside down. I remember a science class once where they talked about that tornado was so strong, a piece of straw pierced a cow. And, you know, it's a true story. So you got to see that those are the three headwinds are the media hating gold, um, the U.S. government and its war against gold. Um, and of course, the strength of the dollar, which is backed by the U.S. military, which spends more on defense than all other nations combined, or the, the next 11 combined. Um, look how well gold is done relative to the S&P 500. It's up 19.4%, uh, and they're down 32. So that's a delta of 50% better during the biggest declines. And these are all recently since, you know, that mostly since the 90s, 80s and 90s. Um, once I was asked by Parallel Mike, 
you know, and I hate this question, but what's silver going to do next year? What what's gold going to do next year? And I think that one of the easiest things to explain to people is the Dow, uh, the gold to DGI, D Dow Jones Industrial. Um, my crystal ball, which is just as good as your crystal ball. I have the Dow dipping around 2950 or 29,500 or 28,500. So I have that ratio returning to, you can see right in that graph that the, it usually returns to about a 10 to one. That'll put gold at 2,850 in the next year or two. And then even with a GSR of 50 to one, you're at 57. With a GSR, a GSR at 70 to one, that's 41. Or the worst case scenario, perhaps a GSR, a gold to silver ratio of 80 to one, that puts it at 36. So historically, the GSR has always been around, I believe my boss, Dave Morgan, says it's usually around 10 or 12 to one throughout history. I believe our great friend, Rafi Farber, um, has some quite a bit of um, ancient text that suggests that it's around 12 to one, which would make sense based on the calendar. Um, this is one of the best charts to show anyone that gold really relative, here it is showing the pound, the dollar, the euro, and the price of oil. Really oil is uh, relative to a gram of gold. Um, oil has not gone up at all, but just look how wacky and volatile it is against all these other fiat currencies. This is a wonderful chart courtesy of James Turk, who's just a wonderful teacher. We're gonna skip these charts here. Um, I love to show, and another shout out to James Turk. He has a wonderful program called the Fiat Graveyard and every single fiat currency, and this could be one of the best arguments when speaking to a normie, that every single fiat currency goes to zero. So let's go ahead and just look at some of these. Some of the artwork is impressive, but the value is unimpressive. So let's just look at, there's your famous $100 trillion bill in Zimbabwe. By the way, places like Zimbabwe are really turning their economy around. And I wonder why, I wonder, oh, they're using gold as it's intended to be used. Here's some more, again, beautiful artwork, but really evil money. Paper money is, uh, is really theft. Um, it's issued to finance wars. It has no value, it will go to zero. And we're all waiting for that to happen. There'll be a lot of misery along the way. You know, we'll all have to, that's why it's our job to go out there, just like all the great religions, that's like Muhammad, like Gandhi. I have to be ecumenical and give a shout out. Martin Luther King, um, whoever the evangelist is, their mission is to, or the preppers out there, like the Alaskan prepper, Parallel Mike, always got to give him a shout out. There's a guy here that looks like Eddie Munster. Let's see where he is. There he is. There's two Eddie Munsters. There's one there at the top. He sort of always had a little devil look to him. And there's Eddie Munster again up at the top. But look at this, the Fiat Graveyard. I This show would have to go on for, it'd be like one of those marathon sessions of The Office. This is my favorite chart. We'll end with this. This wasn't that long ago, around you know 1970, gold's at around 35. And today it's at, um, you know, whatever, 2000. So there's a difference of it's gone up 54 times. That's pretty good. 
And if you were to say real things for real things, you could just say if the average house was around $35,000 um, in the 70s, just like we looked at that chart of gold and the magnitude's been 54, what we're saying then is the average house in the United States, 1.9 million. So that just shows you how undervalued gold is. And this is probably an image that shows us that gold isn't necessarily whatever worth the $2,000 today. It just shows you how crappy and how many pieces of paper it has taken in a relatively short period of time. And that's, I've titled this, this is how the bankers steal from us through the insidious uh, inflation tax, which is just, um, Lenin said it best, if you want to bring down and wipe out an entire class of people, you grind them between the millstones of inflation and, in, and um, taxation. So this just shows you that the currency is debased, just like you've seen photos of the Weimar Republic and the wheelbarrows of money, or the children playing with stacks of money, or actually feeding it to the fire to stay warm. So that's all I have for you today. Thank you for tuning in, and thus ends this broadcast. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate that report. And I think it's especially well-timed because a lot of new people finding out about gold and silver as we see things unfold with the Federal Reserve and the current system and the inflation and everything else that's going on. So hopefully you found that helpful at home if you are trying to explain the merits of gold and silver to others. And before we wrap up, would like to thank Raina Silver who brought us today's video. And as you may have seen last week, Raina did have results back from their Medicine Springs project in Nevada, the third of their three projects, along with Gigi and Batopilas in Mexico. And they were excited to get their results back, where they came back with 1,021 grams per ton silver, over 2.4 meters. They also drilled 1.7 kilometers to the southwest in the previously undrilled Silver Butte area where they came back with 274 grams per ton of silver, along with 5.6% lead, 1.5% zinc, over 4.7 meters. And as Dr. Peter McGaw, who is the lead technical advisor of Raina mentions, successfully intercepting bonanza-grade mineralization in such a thick host rock section lets us confidently check off two of the most important features we want to see in any early carbonate replacement deposit exploration program. So they continue to get indications of a CRD system there. And to find out a little bit more, we did have Lauren McGaw of Raina Silver on the show last week who talked about the results. Also, what's going on at their other projects, and that video is coming your way now. <laughs>